Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Valai Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on uh, Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and other media, uh, uh, media outlets. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, what's up? It's happy Friday, everyone. Here's my awesome co-host, Mala Afshar, and of course, the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top followers on CI for CIOs and CMOs on Twitter, a author himself, and one of the top bloggers as VDNet. So definitely check him out there. But more importantly, we're here to talk about cool people, especially someone who just came off the stage last week. So who do we have first on our list today? He's one of the coolest people I follow on Twitter. It's uh, our privilege to have Scott Belsky as our guest. Scott's an entrepreneur, he's an author, investor, and currently serves at Adobe's Chief Product Officer. What a cool name, a title. And Executive Vice President of the Creative Cloud. In 2006, Scott founded Behance, the leading online platform for creative industries to showcase and discover the creative world. I think over 12 million users. And he served as a CEO until Adobe acquired Behance in 2012. Scott actively advises and invests in businesses that cross the intersection of technology and design to help empower people. He's a venture partner at Benchmark, an early investor in Pinterest, Uber, Sweetgreen, Cheddar, Periscope. He's got an eye for these amazing companies. He's also co-founder and, uh, and on the board of Prefer and Referral Network for Independent Professionals. He's an author of international bestseller, Making Ideas Happen, and now his new book that we're gonna talk about, The Messy Middle, finding your way through the hardest and most crucial part of any bold venture. This is a must read. Every business, line of business leader should have this on their book, on, on, their, on, their, on, their, on, their, on their table. Please follow Scott on Twitter at S-C-O-T-T-B-E-L-S-K-Y. Welcome Scott to Disrupt TV. Oh, thanks Vala, thanks for having me. This is awesome and what a great crew. <laughs> Our pleasure. Hey. We're so excited to have you. And, and you know, your, your book is actually very revolutionary. We often spend all this time talking about the launch of the event, the funding of the event, right? Major milestones and then the sell of something at the end of the day. But you're talking about that weird, messy middle, right? What compelled you to actually start there? And uh, tell us a little bit more about what drove you to write about this book. Yeah, well, I feel like all great products and projects are inspired by frustration, at least in my experience. And the frustration that inspired the messy middle was the obsession that we all have with the starts and finishes of everything and how quickly we, we gloss over the middle volatility. When in fact, what we know is it's just a tumultuous series of valleys and peaks and that we're not our best selves at the lows because we make decisions out of fear and self-doubt and we're overwhelmed with and ambiguity and, and an, working in anonymity and uncertainty. And we're not our best selves at the peaks because we start to attribute the things we did to the things that worked, which is typically not the case. And so how do we, you know, how do we navigate volatility? What are the tactics for teams to stay together, for leaders to stay focused on the right things, to optimize products in the right ways? Um, and that's what I became fascinated by. It was a five plus year project. And then 
I got my ass in gear a, a year or two ago and said, this has to be a book. And, and, uh, and that's where we are today. You know, as a multi-international best-selling author, you know that writing takes a certain amount of grit and endurance and reflection, empathy, collaboration. And so this topic resonates with all of us. But, you know, you've launched, you've sold, you've invested in companies, and now you have an incredible job and an incredibly successful company. How does this topic resonate with you in your current role at Adobe? Yeah, no, it's a good question because um, you know when I when I was working on this project, I was trying to interview people that were overseeing any type of bold project or creative venture, not just entrepreneurs, not just some writers and artists, but also people that were leading product turnarounds and and trying to change cultures and trying to inflect change in, in large organizations because there's a messy middle there as well. I mean, the messy middle is about periods of uncertainty and ambiguity and volatility. Um, you know, in, in my role at Adobe. Uh, yes, Creative Cloud is a large business with products like Photoshop that have had a, a, a leadership position in the market for decades in some cases. But at the same time, I mean, technology is changing. You know, we're no longer just creating at the desktop. Now we're across multi-surfaces. Mm -hmm. Now we like to you know, use services in the cloud as opposed to desktop files. And now creativity is more collaborative. And, and these changes in industry and technology and the way people create require our teams to think differently. And I find myself right back in a messy middle that is strangely similar to being an entrepreneur bootstrapping a company for five years. Everyone says it must be completely different. Uh, on the contrary, there are a lot of similar, you know, uh, 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 feelings and hardships and uh, and challenges. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, and, you know, this this tough part of trying to figure out the messy middle. Like, how do you tell? Like, people have like the the founding team has that capability, or the current management team has that capability to make it through. Because we don't talk a lot about this stuff, right? I mean, we kind of gloss it over. And you know, so it's, it's like, yeah, you're making sausage. Okay, that's kind of it. But if you go deep into the guts, how do you know when a startup is going to succeed? What what signs are you looking for? It's a great question, and I think about this. Or teams, um, not even yeah. just startups, just teams. Sure. I mean, first of all. Um, I do love hiring people that have endured some degree of adversity in their past. Mm. And uh, one of the guys I interviewed in, in the book, a, a, a founder named Tristan Walker of Walker Brands talks about how he had a really tough upbringing. He grew up in the projects. Um, he feels like overcoming that adversity gives him the courage to practice the same principles consistently over the course of his business. And actually he feels like great brands and great companies and great processes are the result of loyalty to a system, to you know, the courage to keep stay consistent with your brand despite you know, the seduction to do otherwise. And he hires people you know, with that context. I also try to hire people with whom every conversation is a step function more interesting than the one before it. I just feel like when you work with people that, uh, you know, that drive that sense of curiosity, it just tends to keep the team together long enough to figure it out. And by the way, I actually feel like the competitive advantage in most startups is just sticking together long enough to figure it out. Um, especially in places like Silicon Valley, where these buzzy headlines always make you think that everyone else is doing something better than you, when in fact, just getting the right team with the right problem together long enough to figure it out and become experts in a field with new, you know, application, new technology is sometimes like all you have to do uh, to, uh, to be successful over time. Easier said than done. As someone who uh, I think on a daily basis suffers from imposter syndrome, I tell you, Every time I read Twitter feed or the news, I'm like, I gotta be doing more. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, hopefully at some point I'll be uh, content with what I'm doing. Uh, but, but advice to folks that, you know, uh, or, or maybe a common mistake people make 
through their journey that perhaps prevents them in that final mile to get to finish. Uh, so what advice do you give? What course corrections should startup founders, executives, or anybody for that matter who's caught in the messy middle, what should they do to get out of this, get out of this uh, phase? Well, you know, it's, it's uh, I would say like the largest chunk of this book and project was devoted to the idea of optimization. You know, mm -hmm. optimizing how you work, how your team works, and how uh, the product functions. And um, the product stuff is its own, its own section. I actually shaded it differently in the book, knowing some people would skip to it and some people would skip it altogether. But, um, but the other stuff is relevant to all of us. I mean, we have to uh, know how to like almost A-B test the way our team functions. Like just because you have that meeting every Tuesday morning, just because it's Tuesday, you know, should you continue having it? Should you try canceling it and then seeing if you like the change or do you need to revert back to the previous version and have the meeting again? The best teams are not just moving on from the stuff that works. They're optimizing that to build like an exceptional culture as opposed to a good one, you know, exceptional process as opposed to a good one. They're also oftentimes seeking alignment as opposed to always layering on more process. That's another theme in the book around this notion of organizational debt the accumulation of decisions that should have been made but weren't, and the fact that just making sure that you know we're optimizing the way our team works and um, and and uh, and and being more decisive. You know, there's so much there. The last thing I would say is, as it relates to that final mile of a project, um, the last part of the book is devoted to this because I found it wild how many projects fall apart, how much churn there is right before launch, how much self sabotage there is before someone ships. And it's, it's oftentimes because of this weird psychology that happens that is so different than the other 90% of the journey, you know, right towards the finish line. And there's, you know, there's a lot to delve into in that area as well. Great advice. Well, you know, this, you're slogging through that you're talking about here. I mean, this is, this is hard, right? And, you know, you talked a little about grit. You talk about some of the stories. I mean, the Walker Interactive story is a great one. Uh, when you just say, screw it, we're done, right? Let's not even do this. Like we've been at this for way too long. Like, I mean, can, can, I mean, like, you know, some of these startups have been going like three years, four years, you know, no end in sight. Like when you call it quits? It's a great question. Honestly, the most common question I get probably from startups that I'm invested or an advisor of or friends that are not doing well is when do I quit and when do I stick with it? Because we're always told, you know, winners never quit. And, uh, and, and, and my answer is always simple. It's basically this. Uh, if you have as much, if not more, conviction in the end state of the world as you see it, and, and, and the work with customers, the empathy you've sought, the testing, the prototypes, everything else, even if you are far from product market fit, but mm. if you have as much, if not more, conviction, you stick with it. However, if you're like, wow, if I knew now what I, if I knew then what I now know now, you know, at the beginning, what, I would never have done this. And I'm like, then what the hell are you doing? Like quit. I mean, especially you have a good group of people around you. Maybe you have some money for investors and they're willing to let you pivot. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Don't think just because we set out to do this, we're going to keep finding a way. If you don't have that conviction anymore, then, then do a reset. You, you advocate uh, hiring for initiative over experience. When you're looking to recruit talent into Adobe, for example, yeah. or the startups that you advise, are there characteristics that you look for that show you that the person sitting across the table from you has the capability to help the team get out of the messy middle or that they're not going to quit in the middle of the messy middle? Why hire for initiative versus experience? 
Yeah, it's a, you know, it's funny, like when you're a startup with a small team and no resources, no one knows who you are, you have no choice. You have to hire for initiative over experience because typically you can't afford the people that are the most experienced or they won't even take the meeting with you. And, and typically it's those people with their tremendous amount of initiative and curiosity and like raw drive towards the solution. You know, that's what helps you run circles around the Goliaths in your industry. And then strangely, once we become larger companies with venture capital or public companies with resources, we become resume snobs. We're like, well, now that I can hire the folks from these top great companies, I'm only going to hire those people. And sometimes you end up hiring people that have all the great experience in the world, but don't have that raw initiative anymore to just insatiably pursue their interests. And so what I actually like to do when I'm interviewing people is I try to understand like, what are their past interests? even if they have nothing to do with the company that I'm involved with or the project I'm hiring them for, I want to understand what their past interests were all the way back to college days. And then I ask them a simple question. What did you do with those interests? Did you become the head of the sailing club? Did you start a bonsai cultivation newsletter? You know, did, um, what did you do? Because my belief is that past in initiative is the best indicator of future initiative. And wow. so if you could test their initiative, is you know that if you can get them jazzed up about whatever you're doing, they are going to be the person that goes that extra mile and has the initiative to uh, to figure out stuff during that volatile, messy middle. That's awesome. Wow. We're going to change our interviewing process. Yeah, I know. Based on this. <laughs> this is part of the fun. So, well, hey, look, you, you've been a lot of interesting startups, including building Behance and some of the other, you've been Uber, you've been at Pinterest, you've been like talking to those folks, working with them in that way. Um, they've all gone through that part, that, that messy part. Are there certain specific stories from there that you can pull out and just say, right, here are three things to think about when you're in the middle of that messy middle? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to drive it down to three, but I think, um, I mean, there are a few things. You know, one I would say is short-circuiting the reward systems. You know, the fact that we we think that it's enough to drive us this like five-year vision of where we might someday be. It actually is enough to start to get someone to join your team or for you to quit your job and start something or take an unlikely assignment in a company. You're, 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 you have this vision of what will be in the future. But on a daily basis, I don't think it's actually enough. I think we have to short-circuit our own reward systems with little hacks and games. And, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, in the beginning of Behance, when we had no customers, no revenue, no traction. Um, when we typed in Behance into Google, it always said, do you mean Enhance? Do you mean Enhance? And you're like, <laughs> you know, someday we'll no longer be a mistake. Like, that was our goal. And, and, you know, we did the things to get SEO and get more portfolios online. And inch by inch, we would test in Google. And then eventually, like six months later, it's back in like 2006, 2007, we typed in Behance and lo and behold, Google no longer thought we were a mistake. And that was like a celebration. It was a term for short-circuiting our award system. I kid you not, Beyonce became super popular after that. And we lost our SEO again. We had to like go back to the There's like these tricks you have to make. You have to be the narrator of your journey for the team or the journey for your team. And part of it is short-circuiting the reward system as opposed to thinking that you can be driven by those long-term goals. One other thing I would say I learned, you know, from Ben Silverman, CEO and founder of Pinterest, who talks about, you know, how he broke his long game down into chapters. You know, he is a Silicon Valley well-known CEO who grew up in a family of doctors where you have to study for seven years just to be able to operate literally and figuratively. And he's like, these people in Silicon Valley, like everything has to happen in three months. And it's like, you know, everything's like iteration and short term, whatever. And so he always had this longer term mentality. 
and um, and he would actually break his company's cadence into chapters, typically on an annual basis, like the year of going global, the year of monetization, the year of this, the year of that, and uh, and he talks about how you kind of how you kind of you know build that journey and foster that sort of long term game uh, amidst your team and some tricks for that. So those are just a couple examples, but um, there's a lot in both the endurance and the optimization sections for that question. So it sounds like for founders and CEOs, right? It's it's really about helping people frame the problem and help them understand, like even if it is a messy middle, to understand that there is a beginning or end somewhere to this messy middle. Yeah, it's it's um it's sort of the analogy is sort of like a driving your team like on a ten day road trip with the windows blacked out, and so they have no idea if they're still sitting in traffic <laughs> or if they're making any progress, and you have to as the narrator, as the driver sort of tell people we're crossing state lines, we're crossing this monument, we're, you know, and that's the progress we feel we are making. I, I talk a, about um, a study that this woman from Harvard Business School, Teresa Amabile did of creatives in the workplace that she had a few thousand people do journaling every day, talking about their motivation and whether they felt they were making progress. And her big takeaway from the study, one of them was that progress is the best motivator of progress. You actually have to feel you're making progress to make progress. And it's just not intuitive for, for leaders of projects and teams. We typically always focus on what's next. You know, something's done and we just like move on. And we don't narrate past progress to our teams because we feel like it's not productive. It's not action oriented yet. That narration is so critical and, uh, and we have to see our, our, our role in that. Scott, you are, uh, in my opinion, a, a, a very much a social executive, a social person. You often share business, leadership, innovation, uh, wisdom on Twitter. You promote others. You're accessible. Um, how does being a collaborative social person help you uh, be a great chief product officer? Um, do you take that same approach of accessibility and empathy and teaching to how you engage with your customers and employees to help build beautiful products? Well, it's interesting that people talk about this notion of a learning organization and what kind of makes a company spread best practices within and, and, uh, and continue to learn and build upon everything and debrief everything and whatever. And I kind of look at, in my case, you know, I use Twitter a lot and some other social products as a way of making, you know, my, my industry a learning organization, at least for me. Um, I mean, everything I share, I get feedback. Sometimes the feedback is no one resonates. And I'm like, well, why, you know, what am I missing? Or people disagree and I'm like, well, what am I missing? And I've learned so much and evolved my own ideas and practices to management um, from, you know, watching people like Yuval and what you share and how people react to it and also sharing my own um, observations. Sometimes I, you know, get in a little trouble because I might be subtweeting something that I went through that day and people are like, were you talking about the meeting we were just in? And uh, <laughs> I have to delay my tweet. Of course not, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> to be a little careful there, but. It's really, you know, that's what's interesting. And, you know, some people are very, you have a very different approach and some people are very private. And I'm actually more of an introverted personality, but I do like to challenge myself to be sharing and to be watching and to be digesting. And, uh, and it's just part of my own growth mode. So it also, by the way, when it comes to hiring people or investing in companies, you know, obviously to, to, to have people know how I think and what interests me and have that be like kind of public knowledge so that anyone who, talks to me, we can kind of pick up where we've left off type of thing. I think there's a huge benefit in, in, in that. So uh, I do it for that reason as well. I totally agree. All right, well, hey, I, I just saw you on stage uh, in LA 
uh, saw you at the financial analyst meeting as well, sit in the back. Um, and, and the most interesting thing was, was the, the, where he got the largest applause uh, this week. Can you tell people where you got the largest applause, which product, which offering, what font? It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, it was interesting. I mean, one of the lessons, humbling lessons, is that as, um, as much as you're excited about the innovation of your products, like the future of creativity and things like augmented reality and Photoshop beyond the desktop and all these exciting things we announced, people just want less friction in their workflow. They just want to be able to creatively you know, freely create. And so we announced these removals of all limits associated with where fonts can show up and how they can be used. And there was like hundreds of applause. I need to like finish my sentence. And uh, I'm like, that's what you're so excited about? I mean, fonts are amazing. Um, and they are, but it just, it, it goes back to like the building blocks of creativity and the removal of friction and letting people do things on their own terms. That was the reminder there. That was the top, that was the top topic while we walked out of there. Like, I can't believe they did it finally, right? And I know, like, you know, having done products before, like how much work went into all the other stuff, Rush, all the other things that you were doing, right? And fonts, right? Like literally everybody's like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing that ever happened. You know, it's funny, like, and one lesson I do take away from that as well, you know, is, and in other situations is, we typically get so passionate about a problem we're solving or something for the customer, but we like don't, we, we do passion as opposed to empathy with the customer suffering the problem. And I always like to say like empathy should precede passion. Like you should do something because yeah. you're out of the empathy for the customer suffering from the problem as opposed to like your passion for this is what everyone's going to want. Because at the end of the day, you'll find those little things and make a big difference. And, and that's, I think, how you win over time. Well, we're here with Scott Belsky, Chief Product Officer, EVP of uh, Creative Cloud at Adobe, and more importantly, the author of The Messy Middle. You can follow him at S-C-O-T-T-B-E-L-S-K-Y on Twitter. An awesome follow. Thank you for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you, Ray. Thanks, Everyone else, thanks again for having me. Thank you. You're terrific. That was awesome. Uh, yeah. That was crazy. Awesome. Literally, the, the audience got up in a roar. I couldn't even <laughs> believe it. I mean, they got up in a roar. And you could just hear, like, oh, my God, they did it. <laughs> so That's awesome. Who do we have next? Well, it's hey, us. It's our privilege to have our next guest, Jedediah, you are founder and executive chairman of Delphix. Jed, who uh, will refer to Jed uh, moving forward, has led two waves of disruption in data management. First as the founding CEO of Avamar, which pioneered data duplication and shipped one of the leading products in data backup and recovery with over 200,000 customers, 20,000 customers and 4 billion of cumulative revenue. They were bought by EMC in 2006. After Avamar, Jet founded Delphix, which pioneered data virtualization with over 200 million in the first seven years of sales. So that was an order of magnitude more uh, in the same period than Avamar and with 30% of global 100 customers. In 2013, San Francisco Business Times named Jet CEO of the year, CEO of the year. He has raised over $150 million of funding across 10 VC firms and has 30 patents in data management. Wait till you hear about his background. You're going to be shocked. <laughs> Before like becoming a, an incredible titan in the technology industry. As an executive chairman of Delphix, Jet partners with executives and industry leaders from companies like Apple and Walmart and all these other incredible companies to help them drive innovation through software. He's another great follow uh, on, on Twitter at J-E-D-I-D-I-A-H-Y-E, sorry, Y-U-E-H. Welcome, Jet, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Our pleasure.
Hey, Jed, like, thanks for being here. And so we really want to start with your background. Like, how did you get here, right? I mean, the data part, we know data is the foundation of all these digital businesses. We're going to need you for a long time. But how did you get here and how did you end up in the world of data? Yeah, in some ways, I, I, it's hard to believe how I got here. I really had no intention of getting here into the tech world. I was the guy in high school who wasn't interested in computers. I'd have to ask my friends to help me set up my computer. In college, I never even took a computer science course. I was an English major in college and thought I would be writing books, novels as my, as my career. And so it's really, it's really by accident that I ended up in the technology industry and that I became an entrepreneur. Yeah, I saw a TED talk uh, where you talked about, you know, uh, how an English teacher now has 30 patents <laughs> And frankly, a very complex sec sector of, of, of tech. So how do you go from, you know, going to Harvard, wanting to be a writer, and now you're a world's foremost expert on business data and innovation and digital transformation? Like what was the, what was that pivotal moment, if you recall, that you went, all right, I'm gonna go build multi-billion dollar tech companies. You know, early on in college, I was an idealistic uh, teacher. I, I wanted to be a teacher, and so I taught high school to help pay for college, and I taught high school when I graduated from college. And there's one great advantage to being a high school teacher or any kind of teacher. You get your summers off. And, and one summer, I took a consulting job at a tech company, and I figured I should learn about this space. I should understand what I'm actually working on. And that's, that's when I came up with my idea for my first software product. Yeah, I was literally a high school teacher just doing a consulting gig, and that's what triggered the idea. In, in some ways, I was one of these kind of loose particles at the edge of the carpet that was sucked into the tech machine. There's just so much money and talent and interest in this world, and you, know, you can be anyone anywhere and get pulled into the machine. Did your students inspire you? Was there a moment where a student said something that perhaps motivated you to explore beyond you know, what you love to do, and that's to teach? It, it, re it really wasn't driven by a single incident. It was driven by the idea. I, I have had students come up to me later and say, hey, Mr. Yua, isn't it strange for a teacher to run off and pursue a dream career? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And, and it is a little bit funny because it's totally unexpected. I, I think the biggest lesson is that it is much easier to innovate and disrupt in the world today than people think. And I'm not just talking about consumer technologies like Facebook or Snapchat, where it's easy to understand the idea. Yeah. Uh, you can even go into deep tech like data management, enterprise data management, the plumbing, the software that runs these big companies. And you can learn about how the technologies work. And once you have a good grasp of the yeah. architectures of the products, you can start inventing your own. Absolutely. You talked about it as thin tech on your TED talk. I, by the way, I recommend all of you, Aubrey, hopefully you can share the link. Uh, I think you were at a university setting, uh, but, but really, uh, your, your talk about opportunities to innovate today being more abundant than ever before was, was certainly sage advice. Yeah, it's incredible how easy it is to innovate today. I, I think it's um, an order of magnitude easier to build a product between the start of my first software company and my second software company. And there's just, you know, with the invention of the internet, you have so much accessibility and information, but you also have this huge amount of open source that's available today, just so much software written by the, the world's greatest minds, and you can just assemble all of it to build your own product for free. And then you have the rise of the big platforms, the big mobile platforms, the cloud, and all of these AI services that are available. All of these are these tools, this buffet of resources that you can consume to build your product and your company. 
And yet the irony is most people, most people in big companies who are looking at disruption and innovation, they just ignore the buffet. They're not really focused on what they could use to transform the world. I agree. Wow. Now, now you have a point here, right? Every company is a data company, right? And, and it's, it's the heart of all these digital businesses. It's the heart of what we're doing. Talk a little bit more. Like, why is every company a data company and how do they get there? Yeah, I think the world is changing. You know, a decade ago, people talked about every company is a software company. We saw the, the re-rise of the internet, the second coming of the internet, when the Googles and the Facebooks all, all rose to power. And so people realize that, hey, we need to instrument software into our businesses or build products with software. And these companies, you know, went into a binary arms race, hiring developers. Uh, but the truth is the big tech companies continue to consume markets. They continue to disrupt. And there's a really big difference when you look at the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons and the Amazons compared to the rest of the world. They're not just software companies. They're not just tech product companies. They are truly data centric companies. They, they collect data from every one of their products. They make sense of the data. They use data to drive their core features. Data is the core of their value. In contrast, if you look at any of the world's biggest financial services companies, the big banks or the big insurance companies, they have a ton of data. They, they have an incredible amount of data that they collect from their transactions, but they treat the, that data as if they're liabilities. They're just byproducts of the way they do business. It's not actually the core of the value. They're not turning it into a product. They're not trying to turn it into a platform. And so that's the shift that needs to occur especially with the availability of tools like machine learning and deep learning and NLP, all these AI type services available in the cloud today, companies need to shift that mindset. They need to look at data as the core driver of value, the core resource to take advantage of and instrument their businesses and products in every way possible to collect that data. You've said in the past that in the world of data, the fast eat the slow. Um, and, but we, we have also seen in just in the last 12 months how data liabilities or misuse of data can really wipe out incredible uh, market value and wealth for companies. As you're advising, let's say you're advising a, a, a digital immigrant company, a company that wasn't born in the cloud, wasn't mobile or social, didn't have those you know, AI or data underpinnings to make faster, more informed decisions. How do you advise them in terms of becoming a fast company or really leveraging data and being careful in how they leverage data so that they can continue to be relevant and gain market share? Yeah, one of the interesting things about, about Delphix is we get to work with many of the world's biggest tech companies. Our, our, we enable secure and fast data flow into all their programs, so we get to see the programs that they're shipping. We also get to work with many of the world's biggest legacy traditional companies. And the difference between those two worlds is pretty extreme. So these digital immigrants, as you talked about, they just have a completely different mindset. They're thinking about the complexity and scale of their businesses. They're thinking about all of their legacy systems. They're thinking about regulations and they're thinking about risk. Instead, on the big tech side, they're thinking about products. They're thinking about what can we add? How can we add more data sources? They're thinking about platforms. How can we unlock the value in the data? And so the, the first thing that I always recommend is find your what. Start with innovation. Start by thinking about how you would reinvent your business or your industry with all the resources that are available today. Start with a cleaner sheet of paper. Just look at what you could build. And then from there, you can start looking at whether or not it would satisfy regulatory requirements or whether or not you can manage the risk. 
And so I think that that's really the key is you don't need to pay attention to all the complexity when you're in ideation mode, sure. when you're in the product creation mode, just focus on finding the what, the, the product that will define the future of your industry. And a, and a follow-up question, Jed. If, if we took at random a uh, hundred of your clients in a room, uh, what percentage of them would we find are leveraging data to identify new business model innovation opportunities? Not just modernizing existing legacy processes or delivering a new product or service to the market, but as you mentioned in your TED talk, like Uber and Airbnb and Netflix and, you know, and Snap and companies that are really created new business models leveraging data. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the answer is, is, is a really sad answer. It's something like 1%. Uh, you guys have probably seen the sixth sense, right? Wow. Where, you know, the little kid says, I just see yep. dead, dead people. <laughs> see dead well, companies. I, yeah, I see dead companies. That's what I feel like. I see dead companies. <laughs> and, and there's this great paradox in the world. These big companies, they're all obsessed with digital transformation, preventing disruption, driving a culture of innovation. And yet they're not innovating at all. They're doing exactly what you talked about, which is applying the world's best technologies to optimizing existing processes. They're just looking at how do I operate now and can I make it a little bit better? But a little bit better isn't going to cut it. It's not going to transform your industry. It's not going to stop disruption. They just can't free their minds from the day-to-day -day grind of managing and executing in these large organizations. And that's what it takes to invent these new products. So they're, so they're just permanently stuck in the messy middle, as Scott mentioned. I mean... <laughs> in a way I, 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 I might I might call it they're stuck at the they're stuck at the really complicated end. <laughs> complicated they they want to they want to enter back into the middle. They need to get pushed back into the middle. <laughs> they're stuck in their data swamp. <laughs> their data lake looks like a data swamp. They're they're mired. <laughs> but there's opportunity. No. There. I mean, this is where your you and your company and your incredible network of investors can help the other 99. I mean, there's an opportunity there. Um, as long as they have the fortitude to, to, to follow you, uh, you know, so. Yeah, I really believe that innovation needs to be democratized and, and, and it's great if these big companies that have, that have huge employee bases around the world, if they can innovate and take a part of the future, that's just better for everyone. Absolutely. No, I agree with that. But hey, but there's there's a couple forces that you're talking about that are that are stopping this from happening, right? We got data lockdown. We got data privacy. We've got all this stuff actually coming at us, right? We're we're getting access to that free flow of data seems to be harder and harder. And people are building barriers of entry to that data as people look at how they trade that data for convenience, how they trade that data for insights, how they trade that data, you know, for security. So, so what do you see? What what does that future look like? Yeah, there, there really is this dynamic tension between data security and regulations and risk and innovation. Yeah. And for most companies, they see it as a binary kind of trade-off. And for legacy companies, they're focused on the risk, they're focused on the security, and they'll spend a ton of money there. And then they'll, they'll just let innovation slide or, or, or wither away and die. Uh, but you actually can thread the needle completely, a completely different way. Uh, for instance, our, our software product, the reason why Delphix does so well in large organizations is we can strip out the sensitive data and then very quickly deliver data to downstream environments a thousand times faster than conventional methods. So you're both more secure and faster at innovation. It, it isn't a binary trade-off if you don't manage it that way. 
And, it, and again, if you look at these big tech companies, it is all about what can we do with the data. Now they're getting more mindful as they, as they have these public breaches, as they have these issues that uh, create regulations. And so they're starting to think about how do I better protect consumers? And I think that's well and good and that's what they have to do as they mature in their markets. But they are always focused on what is the magic that I can provide consumers with data that's really the magic of technology. That's what turned. That's what's turned us all into these consumers of tech products, and what's changed the world so quickly in the last decade. You've said that data privacy regulations, like GDPR, which you know officially launched in in May of this year, will make big tech even bigger. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. If, if you look at the example of the big banks after they were too big to fail, and you had all these regulations on top of them today. They're just bigger. If they were too, fit, too big to fail before, I don't even know what you would call them now. And that's the same kind of principle that could be applied to these big tech companies. When you add these regulations, they're not really that well thought through. They'll, they'll add a lot of expense and complexity for these companies to manage. But that really benefits the big companies that have these big forces and have, they have a giant war chest. They can afford the expense. They can afford the people to lock down their systems this way. Uh, and that really becomes an advantage for them over new um, potential entrants into the market. And so you can have this backfire effect. You know, regulations work on this cycle and they're focused on the really big companies, but uh, innovation is happening on a much smaller cycle and scale. And so these regulations aren't really thinking about the interactive effect of the two. Are there ways to actually create regulations then that don't make it so hard for the little guy? Right. I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of these regulations have just said you got to get bigger to cover the cost of compliance. And that's the tax you pay to participate. Uh, what, what can we do like in order to push back some of those regulations, but also have enough controls to actually help um, protect some of the areas, especially in privacy that people care about? Yeah, I think you really need educated voices that understand the plight of the startup, the plight of the small player in these data spaces or networks or other other industries who can accurately voice what can and cannot be done at that scale. And, and so I think they just need to be, uh, those voices, those educated voices need to be folded into the regulations. There's clear evidence yeah, that companies that. are using personal data to, to, to market and grow their relevance in, in their respective industries, whether it's healthcare, retail. Should personal data be a property right? In some ways, it is like today, you know, you, and Google, it's easy for you to download all your data. Apple just recently announced that you can download all your data. It is your data. Now, it, it, data is kind of a funny thing, right? Because it's just like software. It can be reused infinitely. And um, data loves data. There's magic if you can add data to other data and to more software and to more systems. Yes. And, and I, I think the, the key is to think about what can we do that's good with data while protecting against the ills. And I, I think on the big tech side, they think about what we can do that's good and great for consumers without being as defensive minded. And then on the legacy side, all they think about is defense and they're, they don't even wanna be bothered with the innovation side of it. So there's just a little bit of balancing that needs to occur, a little bit more uh, self-skepticism and realization about what are the ills that can be um, created by enabling platforms for data or freeing data to, without, without a lot of forethought. Do you see a future you know, where explicit consent for use of personal data could lead to a revenue sharing model where you're compensated for explicit consent uh, and, and use of your personal information to, 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 to vendors and, and companies? 
I, I think that's a fascinating business model and it's something that could happen. It's just that the amount of data that can be collected uh, about you and created by you is exploding. And so you'd have to find a way to do this where it wasn't just a huge, huge amount of friction and hassle for the end user, for the end consumer, because that'll kill any product. Got it. You know, this friction thing is always a huge issue. So we are here with Jed Yeh, founder and executive chairman at Delphix. And you can follow him on J-E-D-I-D-A-H-Y-U-E-H. Learn more about where data is playing a role. Definitely awesome TED Talk and story. And more importantly, thank you for being here on Friday with this. You have TV. inspired thousands of high school teachers when we share this video. <laughs> Yeah, and, and they really can. They can all invent their own apps and chew down a big legacy industry because those industries, they're just not paying attention. I love that. And there are an army of amazing teachers that can do this. That's so awesome. Thank well, you hey, so much. Welcome, welcome to the Disrupt TV show alumni. We're happy to have you here. So, all right. Yeah. Glad cool. to join Thank the you. ranks. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Well, who do we have next, man? We've got this is this is the pre-show to Constellations Connected Enterprise 2018, and look at this in full garb and gear. Who do we have? We are fortunate to have uh, a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupt TV show, our returning guest, and I would argue if any one of us, Ray or I, are not available, the number one uh, substitute co-host of Disrupt TV. Uh, Alan Lepofsky, who's Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Uh, he has over two decades of experience in collaboration software industry, and he helps organizations improve the way their employees work together to get their jobs done faster, better, more collaborative. His primary research area is a future of work, including integrating collaboration business processes, which he calls purposeful collaboration, structuring work, social task management, leveraging analytics, and, and data in terms of digital assistance to work more productively, and impact of mobile computing on business transformation, and lastly, measuring workforce culture based on digital proficiency instead of age. And one of my most popular Huffington Post articles was featuring this notion of digital proficiency and not just segmenting by, I'm a Gen Z, I'm a millennial, I'm a Gen Y, so on and so forth. He is a must follow on Twitter at A-L-A-N-L-E-P-O. Welcome back, Alan Lepofsky. There we go. There it is on the screen to Disrupt TV. Great to have you here. Thank you, Vala. I'm the only Canadian we know that's sober today. <laughs> I'm <kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't talk about what's going on with the Canadian legalization, uh, you know, of certain yeah, yeah. And... I have one behind me. Look at that plant. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, look at that. Woohoo! That's my keyboard. Well, well uh, as always, thank you so much for the, uh, the introduction. It, it always, I swear, I just replay that for my mom every week when I'm on the show. But, uh, you know, it's hard going, going last on this because, oh my gosh, the last two guests, I, we often have really intelligent and interesting guests that sometimes maybe aren't as articulate. They have something wonderful they're doing, but don't, these two guys were fantastic. Like, I can't follow this. It was... <laughs> Let's start with something you're massively an expert on. Let's, let's, let's right. talk about the fall conference season. Like, what the heck was going on? This was a crazy fall. This, what have you seen so far? 
This has been, and, and going back to sort of mid-August, folks, if we think about the collaboration market in general that I cover, the employee experience market, there's not one little box that that fits into. There's a whole bunch of different vendors from collaboration to communication and file sharing and group messaging and all of these. So we have Boxworks and Slack Frontiers and Igloo and Microsoft Ignite and Dreamforce and Smartsheet and uh, <laughs> Workflow, or, or sorry, uh, Facebook, you know, their conference and Zoomtopia and oh, on and on and on. So, you know, with all of these things taking place, what's important is to figure out sort of what some, some of the central themes have been. And I think probably the thing that has surfaced the most throughout all of these events I've gone to and sort of the preamble kind of sets the stage for this. The fact that there's all these different events and different vendors, they're all focused on integrating with each other. And this is something that's very different than it's been just a few years ago. This idea of becoming more of a platform than a product and integrating mm -hmm. not just with the tools your customers need, but often even mm -hmm. integrating with your competitors is a pretty significant change in our industry. And I think it's one that's important to the end user. I think if we don't have to feel like we're switching between tools as much, if, if we're in our calendar and accessing our CRM records, or if we're in our marketing automation and we can attach our file assets, you know, all of these different business flows that we do, and that was a pretty central theme across all of the different conferences. Sure, sure. But, you know, as you often do, you wrote a beautiful blog that said, and you didn't use word integration, you used the word aggregation, but you said, you said in your blog, which by the way, Aubrey, please share the link because you're a prolific writer and, and it's always super insightful. You said solving the information overload uh, uh, has to have contextual intelligence. You said you have email, you have text, messaging, chat, social networks, blogs, forums, reviews and annotations. At the same time, you have channels and groups and streams and, and circles and feeds and rooms. Maybe the circle is out now, given last week's news. But, but, uh, <laughs> but you said, I like circles. <laughs> you said we need applications to understand our needs, which yeah. was information at the right time and the right place. So what I love, that one line that I think is super tweetable from your blog was aggregation does not solve the need for contextual intelligence. So yes, integration is great, but can you talk to us about how do you get to that context-rich world where things come to you frictionless and you're more informed in more real time? Okay, yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. You know, when, when we're trying to solve this problem of information silos and we've got all the tools that you just mentioned and all the channels that you just mentioned, the analogy I give is I say like, if each of these is a piece of content and you've got a whole bunch over here and a whole bunch over here, just, just doing this to them doesn't make it easier. Now they're just all jumbled up. So That's aggregation, yeah. bringing everything together. I, I hate to go old school and quote it, but like Ghostbusters, don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad, really bad. You know, just bringing everything together isn't the solution. It's a starting step because now I don't have to switch between tools and things. But in some ways, aggregation makes things worse. Those physical silos were actually a filter. But if we can bring them all together and then provide context around it, and the context can be a variety of pivot points. It can be the person, the topic, the location, the mm. event, the task. So imagine if preparing for Disrupt TV, I was able to bring together 
the emails, the calendar entry, the tweets, the background bios that are stored in a file sharing, the LinkedIn profiles of the guests. If I could bring all, you know, it's much better than this. It's three and nine hours. <laughs> what, what, what are we talking about? We need to automate this now. Yeah, Aubrey, I hope you're listening. <laughs> Aubrey's could, our producer, sorry. If we could automate our producer, there we go. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, all of these no, vendors out there giving this marketing story about aggregation. And, and I don't want to, you know, disparage them or belittle the effort they're putting in, but I think they're missing the point that bringing things together doesn't solve. It's, it's figuring out what to show, when, where, what context, because then it doesn't matter if we have a hundred emails or a hundred thousand emails. If I only see the three that I need to see at the right time, yeah, right. then that's all that matters. Right. Send that out from email to every other tool, bring right. them all together and then only show me the ones you want. I call this concept digital canvases. And I, I really believe it's the future, maybe not 2019, maybe 2025, but artificial intelligence and new UIs and maybe augmented reality, how we visualize things. I think all of these things need to come together and I think we need to change the way we work. I agree 100%. You know, this is um, it's one of your big themes, right? Let's talk a little bit more, right? You talked about the evolution from the future of work to employee experiences. It sounds like uh, this is the next big idea. Absolutely. If you follow the way employees have been working, at least in the collaboration space in my market, we started, you know, a decade or so ago talking about social business. And that was when the rise of Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all these things. And we wanted to bring consumer ways of, of communicating into work. And that was great. And we, we kind of got people to understand social. But at the CIO level, the buyer level, the use case level, that kind of scared people. Like, we don't want people being social at work. So we started talking about, you know, how can we make that more about business? And executives understand this idea of the customer experience. How do you give power to the customer to make decisions and buy the products they want, engage with the brands they want? I feel we need to elevate that conversation the same internally. We need to give employees the power to make decisions, connect with the right people, decide what they're gonna work on, find the right resources. If you can empower your employees, then guess what? Your company's gonna make better products, better services, lead to better customer experiences. And so I'm happy to see at the executive level, finally, I think companies are starting to care about their employees again. Absolutely. So, Alan, a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a great opportunity to speak with uh, Kai-Fu Lee, who mm -hmm. just wrote the book, AI Superpowers, talking about, and he's been in the AI space for well over 30, 40 years, uh, mm -hmm. talking about uh, the, the future of work. And frankly, uh, the fact that large number of tasks uh, will be automated yep. in the near future. The time horizon was, I think, uh, only as far as 2025. So again, very near future. Now, you published a research uh, paper on automating, augmenting, and accelerating the employee experience, where the report examined the benefits of using artificial intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about your report? And I know next week we're going to be at Constellation Connect Enterprise, where we have three, 400 of the best and brightest uh, C-suite executives, and I believe all of them have AI on their agenda. So talk a little bit about the report, but also what advice you're giving these folks that are going to be in person expecting you to help guide their companies in terms of uh, the future of work. 
Yeah, so thank you for mentioning the report. You know, there's a couple things about that. So one of the things I wanted to, to demystify is this idea that AI is gonna be replacing employees. And it's very easy to visually see that when you think robotics and factory floors. It's less of that use case when you think about knowledge workers and creating content and responding to customers and innovation and things like that. So in our space, in that team collaboration and personal productivity space, what AI is gonna do is gonna help us filter information. That problem we just talked about, about bringing everything together. Well, how do you determine what to see? If the software understands your trends, your patterns, your preferences, then it can start to show you the things you need to see. It starts to bring out some insights into things and help you guide decisions like basic things that we're starting to see today, replies to emails, ways to format PowerPoint slides, which files may be the most accurate to look at in your file sharing, not the most recent, but the most relevant and the most accurate. We're starting to see these baby steps where our software is starting to actually help us do things as opposed to just responding to our requests. For the last 20 years, software has done whatever button you've clicked on. It's never kind of done stuff for you. And so we're getting to that stage. Is it perfect? No, but you've got to start somewhere. And, and, and if, you know, if vendors, if you're listening to me, while I like you building these features, they have to be tunable by the employee. Like we need to be able to say, I want more of this and less of that. And, you know, your algorithms may not determine the way Vala wants to work versus the way Ray wants to work versus the way Alan wants to work. So we, we need some manual tuning of these things, sort of like, you know, the sports cars that say, we're going to be automatic, but we're going to give you paddle shifting for when you want to try to decide on your own. You know, right. I want that same thing for my software. Sure, sure. It was uh, Steve Jobs who said the most powerful person in the world is a storyteller. When you write these reports about augmented intelligence and more contextual intelligence happening in just in time where you need that piece of nugget to educate and inspire a colleague or a customer or partner, do you think that the social collaboration tools and better integration of technologies like machine learning or natural language processing or deep learning computer visioning will make us more creative and better storytellers? I really hope so. So I look at how significantly things have changed just from, I, I'm not even going to fake a use case. I'm going to look at myself as someone who has to convey information. To you me. are a great storyteller. <laughs> but Videos, but, streams, visuals. <laughs> but think of the way the tools have enhanced my ability to do that. Yeah. You know, oh, three years ago, I didn't carry a steady cam in my backpack or a 360 degree camera, or a drone. You know, a video that I just made recently this week ended, you know, you thought the camera was filming in my face, but then I actually panned hundreds of meters away and it was, oh my filmed, it was being filmed via a drone. And I've never done stuff like that. And I'm not a movie producer. I didn't go to film school. I'm not an artist, but the tools are starting to enable me to do that. Now, I do think you have to have some skills of your own. And I think you have to have creative and left brain versus right brain. But imagine if like a simple thing, like the, the, the most recent version of PowerPoint, you can put three bullet points for an agenda item. 
and then click one button and it will create it into a timeline for you. And Google probably has similar type of functionality, but it's things like that. If we can start to express things more visually, we've just finished Adobe Max. So, you know, we just had Scott on. Adobe right. Max is an event dedicated to bringing creativity to everyone. And while I don't expect everyone to become a Photoshop or an Adobe Premiere expert, they are focused on how can we bring some of these tools downstream. The joke that I always use is imagine if you opened up a calendar entry and it was actually beautiful. <laughs> you know? So, you know, we don't, we don't look at our calendars right now and go, Ooh, I really want to go to that meeting. Yeah, you're right. You're so right. But, but why shouldn't we, you know? So I think <laughs> the future involves regular employees being able to tell their story better. Alan, your storytelling capabilities just over the last 12 months is a step function on, uh, uh, improvement. Step function. Yeah. And, and speaking about that, I mean, you've got some things you're covering at this year's event, right? And, and as we look towards the future, talk a little bit about the two panels you have uh, for CCE. Sure. So we're going we're gonna to do two panels back to back. The first is going to be about automation, workflow, robotics, AI, sort of how that's affecting things. And, you know, we've kind of skimmed around the topic of automation today, but I haven't said that word out loud. What that means is, you know, what things is software gonna do for you? And we're gonna take a really interesting approach to this panel. And I probably scared the heck out of my panelists yesterday with the introduction email. But what I said we're gonna do is, I've got five experts, and I don't want them to talk about what they know today and how to get there. I'm fast forwarding to everything we talk about today has happened. And it's done. Everybody's great at collaborating. Everybody's great at visual storytelling. Everybody's used to AI and robotics. Well, now what? What comes next? And I want them to fast forward to insert year here, 2025, 2030, I don't really care. So we're gonna be discussing if all of these things happened, then what is the role of employees? And I think it's gonna be really interesting to sort of brainstorm about when we have our personal digital assistants, what work is going to be like. Think about how you interact with your phone right now and you ask Siri what the weather is. You know, you didn't do that a few years ago. You opened up your computer, you found the icon, you clicked on weather, you entered your zip code. 20 seconds later, you finally had your weather. Now you just say, hey, what's it like outside? What is work going to be like when we have that same level of interaction as the status quo? Not as the bleeding edge, but when everybody can interact that way. So that's going to be the first panel. The second panel, Ray, is going to kind of lead off of that to how is that going to change the employee experience, oh, especially around things like video and uh, web conferencing and content creation. What is that world going to be like, again, three, five, ten years from now? So I'm excited. The whole theme of Constellation's event is post-digital disruption. We're not one of those vendors that's talking about getting you to there. We're talking about what happens when you're already there and what comes next. And I'm really excited to uh, brainstorm. I, I'm not just going to be like lecturing. I'm going to be learning. So right. I want to learn from our guests. Hey, having Alan, We're going to see this here. Having Alan on the show last is, reminds me a little bit of Red Sox. Two <laughs> outs, bottom of the ninth, you bring him in and he just hits a grand slam. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, if you're a Blue Jays fan, which you may be, I apologize for the analogy. No but problem. You awesome. Toronto, Ra Toronto Raptors. Go Raptors. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. We're, we're here with Alan Lepofsky. 
So at A-L-A-N-L-E-P-O, you can follow him live next week all over at the Constellation Connected Enterprise event happening Monday through Thursday. So he's our VP and principal analyst on all cool things around employee experience and future work. Thank you for being on the show. Alan, thank you so much. You're terrific. Thank you, gentlemen. See you both next week. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's going to be he fun. Is, he, Ray, he is a rock star. No question. And uh, you're, you're lucky to have him as part of our constellation. <laughs> uh, so, well, hey, thanks. Yeah, well, we've got no show next week. We've got a show the week after. Um, cl clocking out on you know episode 127, November 2nd. And we've got a very interesting, we got like two more shows after that. Can you believe this? This is crazy. We're wrapping up the year. So who do we have for show 127? We have uh, as our guest, Richard Devani, author of The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. We have Celia Fleshaker, CMO of Pros. And lastly, one of my favorite guests, uh, John Reed, will be returning back to Disrupt TV. He's a co-founder of Diginomica, and John is always a fun guest. Uh, you get radical transparency with John. So it's going to be a great show. <laughs> we do have uh, more shows after uh, episode 127, so stay with us throughout the course of the year. And uh, it is heavy conference season, so we've had to you know, take a few Fridays off here and there, but we're uh, fastly approaching our 300 guest milestone, and we appreciate you spending Friday afternoons with us. Yeah, and uh, for those of you following Catch Constellations Connected Enterprise, you can follow the hashtag at CCE2018. All your top favorite personalities on Twitter all in one place. Uh, you'll see everybody. Uh, and more importantly, follow the content. Lots of live stuff, lots of surprises coming through at CCE. And for those of you who are interested in human rights in an internet age, in a digital world, in the future of the internet, uh, check out our event page. You'll see it on December 10th. I think it's live. I'm not sure yet, but take a look. There's some awesome guests like Tim Berners-Lee, Vince Surf, maybe for a few, and uh, we'll be getting together live in San Jose, December 10th, to talk about those issues. So thanks a lot for being on the show. We'll see you next week, Ray, in person, and thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. All right. Happy Friday, everyone. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.